those of you who are old enough, think of, uh, think of New York City in the 70s, that reputation. We even have an English word that has been transliterated to Corinthianize, which means to act in an immoral manner. This explains how the problems can develop, for example, like in chapter 5 that we'll look at, where a, a son was actually sleeping with his father's stepmother, with his stepmother, his father's wife. And the church was doing absolutely nothing about it. So the context of the city in which the church existed had an effect on the church, as it always does. The culture around the church, unfortunately, seeps into the church, has an effect on the church. As it tries to right here in Southwest Harbor. There's a question in your discovery notes that some gr- the groups will tackle about how this culture in Maine seeps its way into our culture as a body. The culture of Maine, of independence, of self-sufficiency, of relational distance, of, of uh, extended families. All these different cultural variables make its way into the church. And I wonder how it's affecting our church for good and ill. Something we'll consider in our small groups. But in, in Corinth, the secular culture was seeping in. And that's, that's obvious. And that's the reason for the letter. Many people have looked at this letter and read it over the, the centuries and, and set it down in their laps and said, boy, what a mess that church was. Yet that's exactly the churches that we have in Jesus Christ today, too, unfortunately. So this letter is very applicable 2,000 years later. But Paul doesn't start with the mess. He starts in a different way. He starts by describing what a church should look like. Not what it is, but what it should look like. Look with me at the first nine verses of our book today. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of this grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ has been confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Paul mentions at least five marks of a church, of what a church looked like 
should look like in these verses. These are not the only marks of a church, but these are the ones he puts in the opening to this letter, to this church that he loved, that he planted, and that he loves these people. And he wants them to know what they should look like. Mark 1, a gospel church is comprised of believers. This might be obvious. Might be stating the obvious. Christian church is comprised of believer. Paul describes believers in three ways. If you look at, look with me at verse two, you see them. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere call, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. They're people, believers are people who, are, who have called on the name of the Lord. They've heard the gospel and they've responded to the gospel by calling on the name of the Lord, by, by repenting and confessing their sins to the Lord. You know, to a large degree, Christians are defined, Christians are defined by their awareness of their own sin. Their self-awareness of their own sin. Their recognition of their need for a savior beyond themselves. A recognition not coming from the law, as Romans 3 says. Not a doing, not an earning, but a recognition that you cannot save yourself. And a crying out for forgiveness to Jesus Christ. So it's people that have called on the name of the Lord, cried out to him in repentance and confession. Secondly, thus they are sanctified. Did you see that in verse 2? Sanctified. Past tense. I mean, that word in Greek just means pure, made pure, made clean. What Paul is saying here by this one little word is he's talking about what we call the doctrine of justification. You are justified. When you call on the name of the Lord, when you recognize your own sin and confess it and repent and call on the name of the Lord, he sanctifies you. He justifies you. He declares you clean. Now, obviously, we still struggle with sin, and we continue to sin, so the next question in all of our minds is, okay, Blake, how do we, how do we deal with that? It's because the doctrine of justification is about what God, who God says you are, not how you act. You're justified. You're positionally clean. Let me put it another way. That's how he treats you. He responds to you. He treats you as if you're like his son, Jesus Christ, sinless. That's how he treats you. That's the doctrine of justification. And that's why it can be past tense here. He declares you clean. Doesn't mean you stop sinning. Thirdly, a holy people. Called to be holy. Holy means in, in the Bible, set apart for a purpose. You call on the name of the Lord, He declares you clean, He treats you as if you're perfect, and He gives you a purpose. And the purpose of, of every believer is very simple 
It's threefold purpose. To love the Lord with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. To worship him. To share the knowledge that you have of the hope of forgiveness and peace and love and acceptance through Jesus Christ. And to love each other. That's it. That's your purpose. The purpose of everybody who calls and is sanctified. And that's what a church should be comprised of. And that's what church membership tries to ensure, by the way. We have a very high view of church membership in this church. And we try to make sure, as, human, as much as humanly possible, that those who are members of this body are believers. That's it. That's why we take membership here so seriously. That's why the elders talk to people who want to become members here and hear their testimony and hear them explain the gospel. That's why you as a body vote to accept members. You're saying, as far as we can see, this person is a believer. Now, we can't see the heart. We don't know everything. But as far as we can see, this person is a believer. We're to take seriously what God takes seriously, and he takes his church very seriously. So seriously, he died for you. That leads us to the second mark. The gospel church is founded on grace. It's comprised of believers and founded on grace. We see that in verse 4, where Paul says to the Corinthian church, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to know that all they have, all they are, is by grace and grace alone, if we can quote a, a popular song. It's, that's it. It's by grace alone. They didn't earn anything. It's not because of where they lived. It's not because of who they are. It's not because of what they had. It's not the education level that mattered. It's not your ethnic background. Jews are in. Gentiles are out. No, he wanted them to know that they were founded on grace, a gift from God. That they had escaped a certain death by no means of themselves. So it's Swiss theologian Karl Barth was explaining to some of his uh, as he preached in the prison near his home in Basel, Switzerland, he would go in and preach to the inmates. And one day he told them this story. He said, you know, the legend of the rider who crossed the frozen lake of Constance at night without knowing it. And all the prisoners shake their head. When he reached the opposite shore, Bart said he was told that what he had done and he broke down horrified. Went on to say, this is the human situation when the sky opens and the earth is bright, when we hear you've been saved by grace. In such a moment, we're like that terrified rider who crossed that lake without knowing it. When we hear the word, we involuntarily look back and ask ourselves, where have I been? Over an abyss in mortal danger. What did I do? The most foolish thing I had ever attempted. What happened? I was doomed and miraculously escaped, and now I am safe on the other side. 
That's salvation by grace alone in Christ alone. You and I were in mortal danger and we didn't know it, did we? We only know it looking back. At one time, we didn't know that the wages of our sin, how we get paid for sin, is to fall through the ice and die. A total separation from God. Once saved on the other side of the frozen lake, we look back and are at the same time horrified and incredibly thankful, aren't we? I can't believe I was in that danger. But thank you, Lord, I'm on the other side. Incredibly thankful that we didn't fall through that ice, that we didn't even know we were on. That is salvation by grace alone. You see, a church filled with these type of people, it really changes you if you actually understand that and live that, people. That you're founded on grace. Your your salvation has nothing to do with what you do. And it shows in how you relate to each other. It shows in how you relate to the world. It displays itself in how you relate to God. I mean, do you relate to God? I did this. Now do your part. No, you respond in humility. You respond in weakness. And you respond in thankfulness. You know, Corinthian, the Colossian letter has a single sentence that says, and be thankful. That has always stuck in my mind. I just need to be thankful for the grace of God. It is a community that realizes that they have reached the other side by sheer grace that begins to act like this, that their behavior actually begins to change. Third mark of a gospel church is it's enriched by Christ. Enriched by Christ. Look with me at verses 5, 6, and 7. Paul writes, For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus to be revealed. Listen to what Paul is telling them. In every way enriched. You are not lacking in any spiritual gifts. Now, guys, you have to remember that this letter is not written to the elders. It's not written to the pastor of the Corinthian church. It's written to the body. So when you read over over the next couple months, realize that this is a letter written to the Corinthian church body. This is a letter that is applicable to the Southwest Harbor Congregational body. We're too quick to personalize sometimes. Paul's telling the Corinthian community that they have everything they need. They're a complete body. They have everything they need to grow and to live and to thrive spiritually. It's within that community where that growth is going to happen. That's why the community of believers is so important for us people. You cannot grow, you cannot thrive outside the community of faith. If you are here today and you're an attender of this church, I implore you as spiritually to become part of this community of believers. You cannot grow, you cannot thrive 
outside of the body of believers. Novelist and essayist and farmer Wendell Berry was walking with his friend Wes Jackson and they observed a field of Maximilian sunflowers. And these are sunflowers that grow in the Midwest and they grow to about 10 feet high. Maybe some of you know them more than I do. Wes Jackson pointed to one particular plant that was growing alone outside of the field, disconnected from the community of sunflowers. Wendell Berry went over and looked at the plant and then observed that although this solo plant had grown very tall, it was clearly unhealthy. The blossoms were too thick and heavy, so heavy that that it was bowing the sunflowers too much and it was starting to snap the stalk. Barry noted that in one sense that plant had succeeded as a solo plant. After all, it was growing and it was unusually tall, but unfortunately, it had completely fallen, failed in its intended purpose as a Maximilian sunflower. You see, these plants only thrive and give life as they grow in community not isolation. Wendell Berry concluded, we could say that achieving success solely as an individual was the plant's failure. Isn't that interesting? It had failed because it lived outside an important part of its definition, which consisted of individuality within community. A part of its health potential lay in its community, not just itself. David Pryor writes in his, in his commentary on this, if we are to know the fullness of God's blessing, if we are to experience the gifts of his grace, it has to be together in community. Why? Why do I have to be part of a community to grow, Blake? Why is that important? Because that's where the gifts of the body come to bear on your life. If you need instruction on the gospel, there are teachers and preachers. If you need emotional support, there are gifts of counseling and of mercy and of compassion that will come to bear on your life. If you need correction, there are gifts of admonition and rebuke that will come to bear on your life. If you need physical help, there are incredible gifts of generosity, of time, talent, and treasure that will come to bear on your situations. If you need advice, there's people within the community that are spiritually gifted with wisdom and discernment that can speak into your life. If you're discouraged, there's gifts of encouragement that these people will come next to you and walk with you through those things. Paul's encouraging the Corinthian community to live in community. It's simply foolish to try and do otherwise. You might give the appearance of growth, but you won't be growing. Mark 4, a gospel church, is eager for the second coming. Eager for the second coming. Look with me at verse 7. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus to be revealed. Why does Paul bring this point up? Why does he stick the second coming in there? Why, Why is that actually a major theme in the New Testament. Because to live in eager expectation of Christ 
actually changes how you live. To live with it, with, and, and we covered this in Sunday school, I couldn't believe the, the overlap here. To live with eager expectation of Christ coming back actually changes how you do life. Think of earthquake-prone cities like Tokyo and San Francisco and others. They live in constant expectation of the next big earthquake, don't they? And so what, what do they do? What do these cities do? Everything they do has shades of that next big one coming. They plan for it, and they develop warning systems. They develop escape routes. It even affects how they build the city. In fact, in San Francisco, they're building homes now with the code called shelter-in-place code. Shelter-in-place code. That means that they're building uh, homes and buildings in such a fashion, in such a way that if a big one comes, and when the big one comes, people will be able to live in their home. It will be constructed in such a way that it will be... You'll have shelter. It might not be great, but it'll be shelter. You'll have a roof over your head. Maybe crumbled, but a roof will stay over your head. That's the code in San Francisco now. Expecting the inevitable but unknown time of the big earthquake affects everything. As a matter of fact, it affects how you wake up and what you think about. And That's how a believer should be with the return of Christ affecting every part of your life. Think of the context of the problems within the Corinthian church. If you've read the book at least once, you know the myriad problems that they had within the church. But let's just consider one, thinking about the coming of Christ. The lawsuits in chapter 6. Paul writes to them about how can you, you cannot have lawsuits against each other. You cannot bring each other to the to court, the public court. The, 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 the heart of a lawsuit is pride of self-righteousness, isn't it? I'm right here and that person is wrong. And at the heart of that is greed and covetousness. But think of what Paul says to them in chapter 6. Paul writes to them, rather be wronged than take somebody to court. Rather take the loss. Even if you're right, he's saying, take the loss rather than take somebody to the public court. How can Paul tell them this? How does that make sense? How can a person who might be in the right suddenly say, you know what, it doesn't matter. Just walk away. And what it is, is living in light of Christ's coming back. Living in light of Christ's second coming. You begin to realize that what you're really squabbling over is rust and dust. You begin to realize that money actually doesn't mean as much as you think it does. You begin to see money as a means, not an ends. You begin to live differently. In freedom, listen to this, in freedom to being wronged. Doesn't that describe the cross of Christ? 
He had a total freedom. I'm innocent, but I'll take the guilt. Christ's return, when lived out, should affect what we do, how we act, how we build our lives, how we prepare for Christ's coming. Finally, Mark 5 is a gospel church is confident in their salvation. We see that in verse 8. He writes, God, who has called you into his fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Verse 8, going back, I'm sorry. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul is opening his letter with intentional themes. So Paul wants to assure the Corinthian church of their salvation, yet Paul knows that there are different categories of people in that church. He's writing this fully knowing that there are those who think they're saved, but are not. Matthew 7. He writes to them knowing that there are those we think are saved that aren't. 1 John 2. He writes to them, and he knows that there are those who are saved and who aren't acting like it. That's the Corinthian letter, isn't it? And then there is a fourth category of those who are saved and act like it. The purpose of this letter is to take those who are saved and aren't acting like it to bring them into the fourth category. Start acting like you are saved. You see, confident, authentic salvation affects your behavior. And even goes a little bit deeper than that, too. Confident, authentic salvation isn't just about overcoming doubts, being self-assured, being a confident person. It's actually believing that God's word is trustworthy. Look at verse 9. God, who calls you into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Do you believe that God is faithful? It comes down to that. Do you believe God's word? Do you believe what, what Jesus tells us in John 10? Whom I have in my hand, no man can pluck out. Because if you believe that, that gives you the confident type of salvation that Paul is talking about here. Do you believe it's true in his word when he says, those he who predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Do you believe it when he writes to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will take it to completion? Do you believe it in Romans 11 when he says, the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. An elderly man once went to the Dallas Theological Seminary professor Harry Ironside. I don't know if you've heard of him. And the man said, I need to know I'm saved. I want a definite witness, something I can't mistake in. And Ironside said to him, suppose you had a vision of an angel 
who told you that your sins would be forgiven, would that be enough to give you confidence in your salvation? The man said, yeah, I think that would do it. Ironside continued and said, but suppose on your deathbed, Satan came and said, I was that angel that spoke to you those many years ago. I deceived you. What would you say? The man was speechless. Ironside then told him that God has given us something more dependable than the voice of an angel. He's given us his son who came and who lived and who died so that our sins could be forgiven. Then Ironside read from 1 John 5.13, which is the purpose of that epistle. I write these things to you who believe in the name of God, the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And he said, is that not enough to rest on? That letter was written from the other side. You know, so many times we say, if only I had something from heaven. You know, and we look at and we read, you know, 90 minutes in heaven. We go, ah, there it is. Or we go to see the movie, heaven is for real. We say, oh, there it is. There's the, now I can rest assured. What if those things are satanic. (laughs) What if they are not from God? You know, people, we have letters written to us from the other side. From the other side. Jesus rose from the dead, and he writes to us from the other side, telling us, you can have confidence. You want to have confidence in your salvation? Trust God's word. Trust what he says. It's from the other side. Trust God. He's faithful. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I ask you to bury it deep in our hearts so that we may trust you more, love you more, understand how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.